You're listening to The Perks of Being a Book Lover, a show featuring two friends who've been in the same book club for almost 20 years. I'm Carrie. My co-host Amy is energetic and enjoys my sense of humor. I still don't get that. She amuses me with her lack of moderation and technological savvy and amazing typing skills. I'm Amy. My co-host Carrie dazzles me with her people skills and her ever sunny disposition. Sometimes I drag her out of her house. But not this past weekend. You're right. (laughs) Basically, we're opposites, but we find common ground on our shared love of books. Each week, we chat about what we're reading with each other and sometimes a special guest. We also dabble in other topics like books in the news, recent book-inspired films, our TBR counts, and general things that tease our brains. We're glad you're here. As podcast people ourselves, we're always interested in checking out other unique book-related podcasts. You can find a podcast to fit any interest, no matter how obscure. There is something for everyone out in the pod universe. Our guest this week is Amy Drown, the founder, producer, and host of Gibson Girl Review, a podcast that focuses on novels from the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, so the the time period 1870 to 1920. Edith Wharton and Henry James are authors from this time who you may have read in high school, but for the most part, novels from these periods have mostly been forgotten among the general reading public. Amy likes to give them a fresh reading. She's found that many of the problems we deal with in 2024 are very similar to the ones people dealt with some 130 years ago. Amy is a historian herself with a vast collection of old books that she inherited from her family. And in the end, she just wanted to read them instead of have them languishing on her shelf. And the Gibson Girl Review podcast was born. Okay, Carrie, but first, I just realized that this movie that I saw yesterday has a connection to our podcast guest today. I saw a movie yesterday with a friend. I asked you to go and you wouldn't go with me. It's called A Taste of Things. Uh, It just came out and it is a French movie that stars Juliette Binoche and Benoit Magimel. I'm not sure if I'm saying his name correctly, but it was maybe the first movie I ever went to in a movie theater that had subtitles. So this is, you know, in French with English subtitles. Uh, I mean, I've seen other movies like that, but maybe from home, you know, not so much in the theater. So I felt very like artsy. It is a little bit of an artsy movie, but it is based on a book from 1920. So I guess that would be the progressive era. Uh, It's by an author named Marcel Roof. And the book's called The Passionate Epicure. So this movie is set in the 1800s. And it's about this man who is a gourmand. And he he must have like family money. And he has this estate. And he has a cook. What is a gourmand? I don't even know what that is. What is that? It is somebody who dedicates their, their life to good eating or appreciating food. Okay. I, I don't know. They didn't really go into this part in the movie. I don't know, you know, what he does as a day job besides appreciating food. But he has a cook who works for him, who's played by Juliette Binoche. And between the two of them, he, they create these amazing feasts for his friends and for other people. This movie leans heavily into the food and cooking as art. And also, it's almost like she's his muse. Not only is she his cook, but she's also his sometimes lover. But if you are a foodie, I would highly recommend going to see this movie just for the cooking scenes. The very first scene of the movie is almost 30 minutes of them preparing this feast. And it's just lovely. There's like a choreography. It's almost like a dance. And you, you see his estate and they're digging up vegetables. And it's it's just lovely. So by the end, though, once I found out it was a book, I wanted to read it because apparently it's a classic of cooking fiction, I guess. Well, it's a classic, but I can't find it anywhere. I mean, I could order a copy from somewhere, but what I really want is to check it out of the library or read an ebook, and I can't find one. And I'm a little upset about it. 
But I would make a phone call. There, there is a librarian who can help you out. I guess I should do that. I'll, I'll call a librarian and see if they can get me a copy from from somewhere because I know that it's still being published. So, like I said, I could buy a copy, but I'm not sure that I really need to. It's short. I think the book is like 200 pages. Hmm. But here's an interesting thing: the two main actors in this, Juliette Binoche and Benoit Magamel, used to be married. They had a child together, they divorced, and then didn't speak to each other for 20 years. Wow. So the way they met was on a movie set, you know, and then they hadn't spoken 20 years, and then they were in this movie together, which is very interesting. Hmm. (laughs) Very interesting. interesting. Hmm. So after I left the theater, it was not what I expected, but I've been thinking about it ever since. So I figure that's a good mark of a movie. And also if you like a period piece, because it does have very nice... Uh, costuming and sets and everything so so that's what i did this weekend but Very good. i asked and and i received so i had several people ask me for book recommendations so i'm excited i'm so you're happy one. i'm happy so i'm gonna do the first one today uh we had a listener bethany who's looking for a book set in florence italy great if it's a mystery She has a friend visiting there and she would like to gift them a book for their travels. So this one was fun because uh, I went to Florence a few years ago, but I don't have any that are pure mystery. So I'm actually going to give two. Uh, The first one is The Birth of Venus by Sarah Dunant. And Florence is so much about its art and the Renaissance. And so if your friend is traveling there, it would be hard to visit and not be wowed by the architecture and even just the artisans who still line the streets there selling their creations. And so this book is historical fiction. It's set in Renaissance Florence. And our main character is named Alessandria, who when the book starts, she's 15, Her father brings in a painter from the north to decorate the walls of their family's chapel because all of these wealthy families had their own chapels. And of course, she falls in love with this painter, but her father is arranging a marriage for her that's more suitable to a much older merchant who she is not in love with. So, you, you know, you have this complicated love story, but as the backdrop, there's chaos going on in Florence because fundamentalist monks have captured control both religiously and politically. And so this book will give you history. It'll give you art. There's a love story and there's a bit of intrigue, a perfect companion to visiting this wonderful city. But I'm giving you a twofer because You asked for a mystery and I couldn't really come up with any mysteries that were set, you know, directly in Florence, at least none that I was familiar with. But I do have a book that's set partially in Florence and partially somewhere else uh, that is a thriller. It's a suspense. And it's My Cousin Rachel by Daphne de Moyer. So I never turned down the opportunity to recommend a Demolier book because as our favorite bookseller, Sam Miller, once said, Demolier is never a bad idea. So the setting of this book is partly in Florence and partly on an estate in England. And our main character is Philip Ashley, who is orphaned but raised by his older cousin, Ambrose. Ambrose is his mentor and Philip is like a son to him. And as he has no children of his own, Philip is set to inherit the state should anything happen to Ambrose. So Ambrose takes a holiday to Florence where he falls in love, marries, and then suddenly dies. And his new widow, Rachel, comes to visit and Philip's feelings for her go from suspicion to hatred to love and everywhere in between. Who is Rachel really and what are her intentions? This book had me on the edge of my seat. It was so suspenseful. I almost had like knots in my stomach when I was listening to it. And if you have the chance to listen to the audiobook, it's narrated by Jonathan Price, the great actor. It is a delight and you should leap at it. It's phenomenal. But this one definitely gives you all the gothic feels that a Demolier has, but with a Florentine twist. So that one's called My Cousin Rachel by Daphne de Molier, and I hope your friend will enjoy one or both of those. Now, I have to I have to add something in here. You suggested that I give a book recommendation since one of my all-time favorite books is set in Florence. That's right. And I turned you down. Yes, you did. I'll say the book 
because it is one of my favorites. I read it in high school, but it is A Room with a View by E.M. Forster. It's a very classic book that I think most people love, just not yes. me. And it has a fantastic film from, gosh, was it the 80s or early 90s with Julian Sands and Helena Bonham Carter. And you said, why don't you recommend that? And I said, I recommended that to you and you couldn't finish it. So I'm keeping my book recommendations to myself. Well, again, many people love that book. It, I just didn't. I don't know why. I just had I just had trouble with it. I just didn't. And the movie, we actually got together to watch the movie. And I don't know if you remember this. But you I fell, fell asleep, asleep, didn't you? But I think that you should definitely still consider it. I think I'm the anomaly in this case. <laughs> You're like, why so. don't you recommend that? I'm like, you didn't like it. Why would I expect this person to like it? <laughs> because they're probably more like you in this respect than me. Perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, okay. well, there there I go. I recommended it. So oh, take wait, it, leave wait. it. I don't care. Would a room with a view, would that be from the Gilded Age? I but, wonder if Gilded Age only applies to American literature. We should have asked her that. A room with a view was published in 1908. And it's set in Edwardian England, which would be 1901 to 1910. So, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Is Let's see. Is Gilded Age only american let's let's use the google yes it's u.s history all right well you know neither one of those books are gilded age they're set in that time period but they're they set in that be time considered period. gilded age because neither one of them are american yes okay yeah there well, you now go. we have made that distinction and uh i think we need amy drown to enlighten we need to all go- of us right on- we need to go listen to it again don't we <laughs> we do to, to get our to get our facts straight one more time. We love to hear about bookish podcasts and the host of the podcast we have on today is going to tell us all about her really unique category of books that that she and her co-hosts talk about. We've got Amy Drown, who is the founder as well as one of the hosts of the Gibson Girl Review. So Amy, welcome. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here and talk books with you guys. I love your show. I discovered you on Instagram. I feel like I say this about almost everybody that we have on. I discovered you on Instagram. It's the place to meet. It's the place to be if you're a bookish person. Uh, But I kind of discovered your podcast and it's such a unique spin. And also I used to sell vintage and antique books. And I just love the look of of an antique book with all the gilding and everything, which brings us in to the Gilded Age. So your podcast, Mm -hmm. The Gibson Girl Review, uh, is a podcast that focuses on the forgotten novels from the Gilded Age and the Progressive Era, which was like between 1870 and 1920. So first of all, explain a little bit about the name. What exactly is a Gibson Girl? Oh, goodness. We could spend the entire episode just on this subject (laughs) alone. It's almost a chicken and egg kind of question because there are just so many levels and complexities involved. So I will try to keep this very basic for time. But there's a two-part answer, roughly. First of all, you have Charles Dana Gibson, the 19th century artist whose pen and ink drawings of women became known as Gibson Girls, even though he never used that term himself. So when someone today says Gibson Girl... They are almost always talking about one of Dana Gibson's drawings. You know, the ones with the curvaceous young woman with the bouffant hair. She's got that wistful, romantic look. And we use that kind of Gibson girl picture as our podcast logo. You know, she's iconic for a reason. If you Google Gibson girl, you're going to see pictures of those drawings and that hair. They were illustrations that appeared in various periodicals, also in novels. They were actual fiction illustrations is where these Gibson girls first appeared, which is another great tie-in for our podcast talking about fiction from this time period. But knowing that these drawings by Charles Dana Gibson were of contemporary women from his day and age, you have to look at a second answer to that question, which is what was it about women from that day and age that Gibson was trying to convey in these illustrations. You know, if he was drawing everyday women as he saw them, well, 
what was he seeing? You know, we refer to our show as a gilded fiction podcast because this whole concept of gilding something means to cover up something's true nature with a beautiful facade. There's just so many layers to that. And this is one of them. The Gibson girl, as this world famous illustration, is herself a gilded representation of everyday women from this time period. So on our show, as the Gibson Girl Review, we're not just using a famous picture and a catchy name that's relevant to the time period that we're reading from, but we're also trying to look beneath that facade in these stories and understand what they might reveal to us about what everyday women were living and thinking and feeling and going through in this time period. So when we talk about the Gibson Girl on our show... And also the Gibson man, who is another counterpart, not as well known, but equally important. We're talking about more than that drawing. We're talking about what the drawing represents. So you saying this about this whole idea of covering what's really underneath. I think when most people think about the Gilded Age, they think about the Rockefellers, the Carnegies, the J.P. Morgans, Mm -hmm. you know, lavish homes and railroads and all that stuff. But it sounds like there's a deeper story in a lot of the novels that you all are discussing. Would you say that that's accurate? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the whole reason this era is called the Gilded Age. It was a pejorative term coined by Mark Twain in 1873 to refer to all of the corruption and scandal that was going on as people like the Rockefellers, Vanderbilts, the Carnegies, the Morgans were building these huge monopolistic empires and creating this giant disparity of wealth between the super elite and the everyday people all around them, you know? We actually discussed this question on one of our recent episodes that we did a kind of Christmas special looking at some of the short stories by O. Henry, who was writing in this time period, you know, the famous Gift of the Magi Mm -hmm. story that everybody loves. At the time that he was writing, everybody was familiar with this saying by Ward McAllister that there were only 400 people really worth knowing in New York society. You know, the famous 400 of Mrs. Astor's social set, right? And O. Henry titled one of his short story collections, The Four Million, purposely Hmm. to contradict that, to say, no, forget about the elite wealthy 400. I'm more interested in the lives and happenings of the 4 million other people who were out there. They are equally worth knowing. And that's one of the reasons that we strive to share books from this time period that are perhaps more obscure today, because modern readers seem to have this kind of pretty limited view when it comes to literature from the Gilded Age. They kind of are all talking about the same old books from the same old authors, Ellen Montgomery, Edith Wharton, Henry James, Louis May Alcott, Mark Twain, you know, the like, when there are so many others out there. So we definitely embrace the four million attitude, uh, not just about the history of the age, but also about looking at the literature from this time. So how does the progressive era differ then? That is a great question. The progressive era definitely isn't as talked about as much as the Gilded Age, so that people often think they're one and the same. But there is a pretty big distinction between the two. My fellow historians may kill me for making this generalization, but I think the easiest and simplest way to mark the difference between these two historical eras is the Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890. Before this law... During these years of this incredible growth and industrialization that followed the Civil War, when you had the Rockefellers and Vanderbilts legally abusing every loophole in our capitalist economy to build these amazing fortunes and empires, completely unchecked, the federal government, the laws at the time, were on their side. And this, like we said, led to this huge gap between the elite and the working classes. You had terrible, unsafe working conditions, so much more. And the workers themselves were the first ones to push back in terms of creating unions to kind of start fighting for their rights. 
But with this Sherman Antitrust Act in 1890, this is when you see the federal government kind of switch sides and begin to fight on the workers' behalf to improve their conditions. And they really go to work starting to bust up these huge monopolistic empires like Rockefeller's Standard Oil. And they also begin to regulate things like child labor laws, the eight-hour workday, the 40-hour work week, creating national safety standards in the workplace and enforcing them. That's what the progressive eras do. And again, this is a major, major oversimplification (laughs) of the history of this time period. As a historian, I can get super nerdy about this kind of stuff. But that's the easiest way for people who don't know anything about the history of this time period to understand the difference. The progressives, in a sense, were the ones who were determined to peel off that gilding and fix the problems that arose during the Gilded Age, that wealth disparity. This is when you see the rise of the middle class Mm -hmm. because the improvement in those conditions led to the creation of the middle class and people who had money to burn and could buy luxury goods like books. (laughs) Did you study this in school or because you are a historian by profession, when you get interested in something in history, the nature of it is you just immerse yourself in it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so you didn't focus on this in your studies. No, my degrees were in medieval history. Oh, okay. So I did take a lot of courses about this, but this was just kind of over time becoming fascinated with history in general. Mm-hmm. And especially in this time period, the more you read about it, it's so intriguing. There was so much happening during this period around the turn of the 20th century, in terms of American history, you have this nation trying to redefine itself after the horrors of the Civil War, and also for the first time having to define its position on this global stage. You have like this incredible outburst of scientific discovery and inventiveness and technology and industry and all this stuff that was absolutely unprecedented in all the centuries of history that came before it. Yet socially and culturally, there is still a very strong tendency in this time period toward more traditional values. You also have religious revivals popping up everywhere. The social reforms like the temperance movement, they have a very different idea in this time period of what progress should look like. So looking back from the 21st century vantage point that we have, you can just see that this time was both extremely modern and extremely traditional and butting heads a lot. And that just makes for a lot of drama and intrigue that is absolutely fascinating to read stories about and to read the actual history. And it's actually pretty relevant for us today because we're kind of living through the same thing here in the 2020s, right? Yeah. With the Jeff Bezos and the Elon Musks of the world. Oh, yeah. The 1%, right? That's what I was thinking about when you were talking about the 400. I was thinking about the 1%. We have it today. Absolutely. So how did this interest that you had over the historical period then flow over into reading books? And wanting to actually have a whole podcast dedicated (laughs) to the literature of this time period. My my personal history about it, I I love the Victorian era. I live in a Victorian home that I love to restore and do all this kind of period stuff too. So I'm very much just a history nerd. I've been an old soul person my whole life. I was the only kid in junior high who was drooling over Jimmy Stewart and Tyrone Power and (laughs) all these other people that in school, they're like, I don't even know who you're talking about. (laughs) So history and antiques and old things has definitely been part of my whole life. And antique books were just one part of that. I inherited some from my family. I started buying some as a kid, just like you were saying, Amy, because they're old, they're cool, they're beautiful. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're physically some of the most beautiful books ever made come out of this time period. So my fascination with the time led me to start reading novels from the time and collecting novels from the time as a means of primary source research. You can read general history books, but there are things that you can't learn 
any other way than by reading fiction from the time period. Because in a novel, you're hearing those people speak for themselves. You're not reading a modern person's generalizations being imposed on the time period. You're reading what those people are saying about themselves. And you can read their dialogue and you can hear how they talk and how they communicate. And so it's just a different way to look at history. And plus, fiction is fun. I love historical fiction, and I am really gung-ho about accuracy in my historical fiction. You know, if somebody puts any kind of anachronism or something <laughs> in the story, it just kills it for me. I can't stand it. So this is a great way to f- satisfy my accuracy OCD-ness because you can trust what these books are saying about themselves because they're not writing about the Gilded Age or the Progressive Era. They're writing from that time. So when you see things like modern dialogue pop up or what we think was modern dialogue, you can be surprised that, hey, I didn't know they said that. That's one thing that we learn all the time with the books we read on our show. We call them these little myth buster moments because little things pop up all the time that we go, huh, I didn't know they did that back then or said that back then. And dialogue is definitely a biggest one. You know, for example, if a modern historical fiction author was writing a story set in the 1890s and had their characters saying things like, what's up? And ditto. And okay. They would be trashed all over Goodreads as being like a terrible writer who didn't do their research, right? But we have seen those exact words being used in stories from that time period. Hmm. You know, there is a 1907 novel that we reviewed on the show in our first season. The very first words in the book, a character sits down at a table at the Palace Hotel in San Francisco and looks at his friend across the table and says, so what's up? <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. You know, and, and so reading that in an actual 1907 novel, that kind of teaches you something that, oh, I didn't know they used that phrase back then. And it's really surprising to discover in that way that, you know, they weren't all that different from us. You know, these old books are not as inaccessible as you might think they are. You have two co-hosts. I am the host and the producer of the show. So right now all the technical stuff is up to me. But my co-hosts, Jacinta and Amanda, are amazing. And the three of us have such distinct personalities and tastes that as we read and discuss these books, we see things really differently sometimes, which is fascinating and often hilarious. We laugh a lot. So our process always begins with deciding what book we want to read. After we read a book, we do some extra research because we love to look up information about the authors because oftentimes we've found that learning about the author's background and if we can find anything about why they wrote a specific book is really informative in helping us understand what we're reading. And we also love to find original book reviews from that time period. Mm. That is one of our unique aspects that we do is not just trying to look at these books with our own 21st century ideology and reading into them what we think we're seeing, but taking the time to understand what people at that time saw in these books and how they reacted. Most of the time, we find out that we think the same thing that they thought. (laughs) I can't think of any example yet that we've had on the show where the old reviews that we found were great and we hated the book or vice versa. So that's another great connection. Like, hey, these stories are timeless. We're reacting to them the same way 120, 150 years later that the people who read them back in the 18 and 1900s read them at the time. Hmm. When I was looking through some of the books that you all have discussed, some of them, you know, I was like, oh, I've, I've heard of this, like Phantom of the Opera. Exactly. Um, although I suspect that most people know about that from the theatrical performance rather than from knowing mm-hmm. that it was a book. My daughter happened to ask for that book for Christmas. She's 19 years old. And that's one reason we did that on the show, old. because yeah. most people don't even know that was a novel, let yeah. alone a novel from 1911. So it's great to say like, hey, how close to the original story is Andrew Lloyd Webber? 
Right. But some of them, I've never heard of them, like Jan of the Windmill by Juliana (laughs) Horatia Ewing, which was from 1877. So -hmm. you said that you all kind of find the books. What does that look like for you in terms of finding the books? When it comes to finding books to review, we start with our own bookshelves. My co-hosts and I all have our own old book collections that are filled with beautiful old books that we bought because they were pretty, just like pretty much everyone does these days, right? (laughs) But we had never read them, and we all wanted to change that. That was one of the biggest motivations for why I started the show, is it was really bugging me to walk into my library downstairs and see shelves of books that I hadn't read. So I needed to do something to change that. So that's where the list of podcast books started from. It was literally listing books from our own shelves in our own homes. But the great thing about reading books from this time period is that they're all in the public domain, which means they are all free to read if you can find them in line. So our first requirement for any book that we share on the podcast is that we have to be able to have a share link available. It's got to be out there somewhere so that we can include a link in our show notes so that people who want to read these books with us can. But beyond these shelves, there are so many places to find old books. You know, a lot of old books have publishers advertisements in the back where they're listing, hey, check out all the books by this author or all the books in our new series. That is a great way to find new books you want to read. So anytime we see something like that, Anytime you hear someone reading about an old book, talking about an old book, in the stories themselves, the characters are often reading books and mentioning books. Anything like that, we throw it on this little podcast TBR list that we have. And sometimes we even just search for things on eBay or Etsy, like antique novel or Victorian romance, and just see what comes up. And if it looks like an interesting title or it's a pretty book we want to buy, then it goes on the list and we add it to the schedule to read someday. Okay. I have a question about that because so many of these (laughs) books, while they are beautiful, I would think they'd be hard to actually physically read because I'd be worried I would ruin it, right? Like they're sort of delicate. (laughs) Are you actually reading your own copies? In my case, yes. I am literally holding a book in my hands in my library downstairs, reading a book, if it's one that I have. In that case, it's not something that we make all of the co-hosts get physical copies for themselves. So we've had some instances where the book that we're reading is one from Jacinta's collection, for example. So she's reading the physical book, and I'm reading it on my Kindle because Mm -hmm. I found a free version to download. So it depends, but... And I have a couple books that are pretty fragile and in poor condition so that I don't want to handle them. But I would say 99.7% of the time, if it's a book I own, I'm physically reading the book because I just love reading physical books better than ebooks anyway. Mm-hmm. Just there's something tangible about holding it in your hands. You can see how far you've come, how many more pages to go. You can flip back to reread really quick. You can kind of skip ahead if you are, you know, want to ruin the spoil the ending. And just knowing that, especially when you have an old book that has tons of names written inside the front cover of people who've owned this book mm-hmm. century before you. I just love holding that and knowing like, hey, they read this too. And it's a great connection that is just it, there's something emotional that you can't experience just by reading the story on an ebook. But the ebooks themselves, they're still just great stories. And our podcast TBR list is well over 2,000 oh titles <laughs> right now. <laughs> so we will be on the air for a long time. That's even worse than Amy's. I know, right? I didn't think that was possible. Are there any like patterns in the novels as far as like themes, symbols, archetypes that you see a lot? that make it unique to this time period? Well, one that we've seen a lot in novels from this time period is the happy orphan child who has to save the grumpy old people in small town. (laughs) (laughs) Why this became such a popular trope during this time period, 
I I still don't know. I want to find out though. I mean, this is where you have your Anne Shirley's, your Pollyanna's, your Emily Starr, if you want to go back to Lucy Maud Montgomery, Heidi, Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm. There are so many books from this time period, even a book like Yawn of the Windmill that you mentioned earlier, Carrie, is that kind of trope. It's an orphan child who's very happy, positive, despite hard circumstances in their life. They get shipped off to a farm or some kind of rural small town setting where they meet a bunch of grumpy old people. And their positivity improves life and makes the grumpy people happy too. You know, it's just why was this so popular back then? The whole term Pollyanna means that, right? Like that's the embodiment of that idea. And she wasn't even the first. I mean, I think it's definitely become the most popular with Pollyanna and the glad game and all that kind of stuff. And now we kind of use it as a pejorative, calling Mm -hmm. someone a Pollyanna's. Not necessarily a compliment, but this was a huge popular trope back in the Gilded Age and Progressive Era. But I think the biggest overarching theme that kind of strikes us in every story is really just the revelation that people are people and there is nothing new under the sun. Mm-hmm. Right? It is fascinating to read characters in these books who are experiencing some of the exact same problems that people face today. I mean, we're talking things like homesteading, people who choose to raise pets instead of children, career women who want to have families too, government handouts that encourage unemployment, epidemics and social distancing. I kid you not. We have seen these exact same scenarios Hmm. in books from 150 years ago. And so it is one thing to read about these themes in modern historical fiction, because there's a sense that we might be projecting them back into this historical period, but to read these kind of thoughts and concerns and questions from books written in that time period by someone living at that time, it just really exposes our own hubris and Mm -hmm. makes these stories that much more relevant in a really emotional way. It's so much fun. I know this is probably going to be a difficult question, but do you have three favorite books you know, for, for those people who maybe listen to this episode and they're like, huh, I'm curious. Do you have three that you could say, hey, here's maybe here's a good maybe, place to start? Here's a good right. place. <laughs> or, but also, yeah. you know, things that, that maybe they haven't heard of. Right. Right. Well, it definitely is kind of a Sophie's choice. <laughs> so I'm like, of course, I want everyone to listen to every episode of the Gibson Girl Review and read all of these books. But that if people are completely unfamiliar with reading antique novels or you're worried that they might be really verbose and hard to read because the language is archaic or whatever, there are definitely some books I can recommend that we would consider to be kind of gateway books. Mm. This is a way to ease yourself into the first-time experience of reading antique novels. And these are three books that we have featured on the podcast. The first I would say is Poor Dear Theodora, by Florence Irwin. This was published in 1920. This is one of my all-time favorite books. It's a great emotional coming-of-age kind of story about a woman going through World War I, a poor woman who has to go work as a companion to a wealthy New York society woman. And it's got lots of great romance and these kind of staying true to yourself themes that are really relevant for modern readers. A second book I would recommend is The Prisoner of Zenda by Anthony Hope, which was first published in 1894. This is a semi-famous one. It's kind of a title people have maybe heard of, but probably don't really know what the story is about. The Prisoner of Zenda is absolutely hilarious. It really is like the Gilded Age version of The Princess Bride in terms (laughs) of the high comedy. And it's just this super high concept plot of an English tourist who has to impersonate a European king in order to save the throne. And there's, of course, a princess in distress and all kinds of stuff. And it's just a real swashbuckling, sarcastic, funny, witty story. And it's so energetic and entertaining. It's a great summertime read if you just like the action-adventure story. So I definitely recommend that one. And the third one I would recommend is a short story called Her First Appearance 
by Richard Harding Davis. He is a new favorite author of mine and one I had never heard of until I started this podcast. This little short story is about a girl who is performing on stage in a New York theater and a rich society man who sees her perform, recognizes her as being related to a wealthy society man that he knows. And so he kind of takes it upon himself to reunite this little girl with her family. And it's just this quick short story, but Richard Harding Davis is an amazing writer to read from this time period because he's a Gilded Age writer who's really writing with this progressive era mindset of wanting to make the world a better place. So his stories are very much about crusaders fighting for social justice or righting wrongs like this little girl who had been sent away from her family. He wants to correct that. He wants to take her home. He also writes in a very punchy kind of modern style. His stories kind of drop you into the middle of the action on page one and then suck you right back out before you're ready for the story to be over. (laughs) So it's brutal, but in the best way. You're like, I want to keep reading. So he's a great author that I definitely recommend to people who are not familiar with books from this age, because it feels like you're reading a modern story. He has a very 21st century kind of writing style. We've reviewed each of these books on the show, so you can check out all of those episodes. And there's download links on each of our show notes where people can get the books for free and dive in. I think those three would be kind of a really good cross-section of the type of novels and short stories that are out there that are just like, begging to be rediscovered and enjoyed all over again. Do you read contemporary books that are out right now or do you read mainly the older books? I read everything. So yeah, so we read them all. My co-host and I, we write our own modern fiction. We read everything. So yeah, we're definitely not out there to say old books are good and new books are bad or you should only read certain types of old books. That's definitely not us. Our goal is to get modern readers to include old stories in their new stuff. I think the only thing that we would say that makes old books preferable to reading new ones is that if we don't like it, well, who cares? The author is dead. They can't get mad at us. (laughs) They'll never know that they got a one-star review from Goodreads. (laughs) Exactly. I have no qualms leaving a one-star review on an old book. And that's kind of part of it. Like even Goodreads and authors and things like that today, you almost can't leave an honest review because someone's going to argue about it. It's crazy. So it is fun for us. We feel there's kind of a no holds barred approach to reading these old books because yeah, there's no repercussions if we don't like them. And there have been books on the show that we do not like. And some of our most popular episodes are the books that we kind of bash a little bit, <laughs> but we Everybody still present them bashing. as worth reading <laughs> yeah. because that's our, our mindset. They're words. Somebody took the time to write these down. And my personal belief is like written words Written language is what separates us from every other creature on the planet. Humans are the ones who can take those emotions and feelings and experiences and put them into words to share them with other people, not just people in the here and now, but with people who we're never going to meet hundreds of years from now. Well, I, I have you seen the new show? I guess it's not that new. It has several seasons called The Gilded Age. Have yes. you watched that? I am a big fan of Julian Fellows, so I was a big Downton Abbey fan, and I was definitely going to watch The Gilded Age when it came out. So that's a great show, and that's one reason our podcast has become popular is because people are seeing that name, Gilded Age, out, and they're kind of being interested in this historical time period again. And reading books from that time period is a great way to get your Gilded Age history fix in between episodes and seasons of shows (laughs) like The Gilded Age. And so, yeah, I'm a big fan of that show. I think it's a lot of fun. <laughs> well, I think this is a good place for us to to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what we're reading. But before that, we're going to have a fellow book lover tell us about their latest five-star read. Hi, everyone. My name is Nelvina Suzanne-Gino, and I live in the United Arab Emirates. Today, I'm going to tell you my very favorite read, which was a definite five stars, no six-star read. This book is The Sun and the Star by Rick Riordan. 
Now, I've read a lot of books in my life and I've reviewed a lot of them on my Instagram handle to all readers, but I must say this is my favorite during due to several reasons. Number 1, I should probably not show partiality, but it's by my favorite author Rick Riordan and his works are amazing. Number 2, they're centered around my very favorite characters of all time, Nico D'Angelo and Will Salas, and I loved this journey for them because it was so difficult and there were so many obstacles and I got so emotional halfway. But still, I managed to feel such feelings they nearly exploded my head and still they overcome the obstacles. So a book that emotionally affects me that is actually a good writing because you know how good it was you were that stunned by it and the little details that were littered all across it and the intricacy of the plot that was amazing so that's why this is my favorite read thank you We are back with Amy Drown from the Gibson Girl Review Podcast and Carrie. Carrie, what book from your TBR are you reading now? I'm really excited that I picked this book because with uh, Amy Drown, our guest, well, and you Amy, you know, you like vintage stuff. Well, this is really vintage. We went to the Columbus Book Festival in July 2023. I was super nerdy excited to attend a panel on a book that is about the system of earthworks in Ohio. And there were two panelists who talked about the earthworks in Ohio, one of whom was Elizabeth Weiser, and she's a professor at Ohio State University. And I just completely nerded out about these earthworks. So do either of you know what earthworks are? Most people do not. I know because I think that the ones that they're talking about are in central Ohio, central South Ohio, and we pass by the exit for them every time I go to visit my parents. But they're they're mounds, right? Right. Well, so now they like to refer to them as earthenworks or earthworks rather than mounds because people think that there's not a whole lot like, oh, well, how skilled do you have to be to make a mound of dirt? So they don't like to use that term anymore. But you're exactly right. Essentially, what they are is these systems of mounds of soil, but they are really fascinating in that it's cultural, they're geometric, they have to do with the stars and the moon and the sun and the alignment. And so there's like a whole lot of sort of indigenous math that went into the creation of these earthworks. So and are these so, the ones that are like thousands of years old? Yes. 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 Let me backtrack a little bit. What got me fascinated in this is in 2022, my daughter and I went to Ecuador and we were visiting a number of world heritage sites. And so that got me interested in finding out what world heritage sites there are in the United States. And so from looking into that, I personally discovered, had not heard about Cahokia Mounds, which is near St. Louis, Missouri. I have not made it up there yet. Their interpretive center is undergoing some serious renovations. So I want to wait until that is open. But there are several other sites. One is in Louisiana. That is also a World Heritage Site, Poverty Point. But in October of this past year, 2023, the earthworks in Ohio were given World Heritage designation. Oh, that's great. Like if you are interested in these earthworks and the history and the culture, it, that's like super awesome news. A lot of times, you know, we think about the history of the United States and maybe we'll go back to the 1600s in our brains. You know, mm -hmm. we think of like maybe the 1619 project. But really, the history of civilization in the United States goes back thousands and thousands of years, predating the Egyptian pyramids and Stonehenge. And that history has been overlooked for far too long. So this book, again, which is called The Fertile Earth and the Ordered Cosmos, Reflections on the Newark Earthworks and World Heritage, helps explain the significance of these earthworks and why it's important that they be preserved and studied. So this isn't a book that you're going to hear tons of people talking about, but if you have any interest in ancient civilizations in the United States and you're 
you know, willing, like for us, it's like a three hour drive to go up to Ohio to visit these earthworks. So that is definitely on my to be visited really, really soon list. Anyway, I'm done. That's it. Questions, comments. (laughs) That sounds like exactly the kind of nerdy history rabbit hole I could lose myself in for an entire weekend. (laughs) I love that. I thought you would appreciate that. I'm I'm really glad I picked it. Well, Amy Drown, what have you been reading? What what has been on your nightstand lately? Well, it's funny that you mentioned Ohio because one of the things I have been rereading lately, or I should say re-listening to, because I've been doing the audiobook. You know, I've already recommended three antique books from our podcast for everybody to read. But this is The Wright Brothers by David McCullough, the late David McCullough. He was a phenomenal storyteller and historian. He has this incredible way of writing these nonfiction biographies that turn out to be like edge-of-your-seat page-turners. He makes them so engrossing and engaging. I love it. So The Wright Brothers was published in 2015, so it's been out for a few years. And this was a total bucket list moment for me when this book came out because David McCullough did a book tour and he came to Denver where I was living at the time in Colorado. So I was actually able to go to his speaking event and meet him in person and shake his hand. And I was just totally nerding out that, oh my gosh, I just met David McCullough. So met one of my literary heroes. It was epic. But this book is short. It's not very long as at least compared to his, some of his other biographies. <laughs> but this is a biography not only of Orville and Wilbur Wright, but it spends a significant amount of time on their sister, Catherine, hmm. who is often overlooked in the history of the Wright brothers and their career as aviation pioneers. And I love how this book focuses on what Catherine contributed a lot of behind the scenes. You know, she was really integral keeping their family bicycle business running while the brothers were off in Kitty Hawk doing their experiments because they wanted to avoid any kind of outside investors or government funding because that would mean losing the power to control their experiments. They didn't want to do that. They wanted to keep all the technology, all of the control themselves, and that meant keeping the funding themselves. But they couldn't be in Kitty Hawk testing their gliders and airplanes and keep the bicycle business running. So that was Catherine's job. She actually Mm -hmm. kept the money coming so that they could continue to afford their aviation experiments. You know, she was also caring for their father as he was getting older. She was their brainstorming partner. As they became famous, she kind of became their media and marketing manager, you know, telling them what public events they should go to, helping them write speeches on how to say this. I mean, she did a lot. I mean, she was even credited with one point at actually saving Orville's life after a rather horrific crash that he had. Oh, wow. So... Coming from a perspective of the Gibson Girl Review and the kind of books that we read, I was just intrigued recently to to give this one another read, or in this case, another listen, because I have the audiobook, which is read by David McCullough. And mm. I absolutely recommend that because he has just such as this warm, gravelly, comforting voice that just sucks you right in. It's like sitting on your grandpa's lap and saying, tell me a story. And he just goes with it. It's so wonderful to listen to him read the book itself. But Catherine Wright, as she's presented in this story, not only is all the aviation history super interesting and how they learned it, and they actually learned most everything they knew about flying from reading. Hmm. They were not pilots or engineers or anything like that. They read books about birds. They studied birds. They read books about aviation. And they figured it out through reading how man could fly. And it's just like, yay books. I love it. <laughs> you know, it's it's a fascinating story. Catherine Wright is a great example of kind of a real life Gibson girl, same kind of women that we read about in the fictional stories from our podcast. And so it's a great read. It's a fascinating era in history. And I guarantee when you're sitting in an airplane, watching the flaps on the wings go up and down as you're taking off and landing, you will never be able to look at that modern airplane the same way again after Mm -hmm. reading this book, because it just breaks down 
the history of how that plane even came into existence in the first place. Absolutely fascinating. That does sound good. That's not even a like a topic I'm not interested in, but you've <laughs> sold it. <laughs> All right. Well, Amy Smalley, what have you? It's it's hard when we have two Amys because yeah, I feel like I need to differentiate. Back in the day, <laughs> it yeah. was. Are, are you are you a '70s baby, Amy? Absolutely. Me yes. too. Yeah, that was the yep. Amy era. Yeah, the Amy and Jennifer and Jennifer's. era. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Jennifer's. I think I graduated with like twenty Jennifers. <laughs> Well, I am diverging a little bit from the kinds of books that you all were talking about today to a middle grade children's book. It's called Winter Frost by Michelle Houts, who I actually think is an Ohio writer. But this book is for ages eight and up and kind of at the end of the winter season. But it's a great winter read for folks like me who are a little obsessed with Nordic traditions. I've had this thing lately, photos. I I, I must have looked at one and now you know, the algorithms say, hey, she really likes pictures of Norway. And so now I'm getting all these pictures on my social media of like stunningly beautiful scenery in Finland and Norway and Sweden. And I'm a big follower of Huga, you know, that art of cozy living. And by golly, they're just supposed to be some of the happiest people on earth. So I suppose that we could learn a little something <laughs> from them. And I'm a little embarrassed to say that I like a good gnome. Uh, and so, <laughs> so, So when I ran across this book at the 2022 Louisville Book Festival, I knew I had to buy it. And it's the story about a 12-year-old girl named Bettina who lives in rural Denmark with her parents and her baby sister, Pia. Now, this book is technically set at Christmas time, but it's really more of a winter story than a holiday story. And so when Bettina's parents get word that her grandmother is ill and in the hospital, they decide that they must travel to her. But they decide that Bettina is old enough that she can watch Pia for a day or two um, while they go to the big city to see the grandmother. And they have some neighbors who live not far away who they think can, you know, check in on them, make sure everything's okay and see if Bettina uh, needs any help. But in the rush to get ready to leave for the city, Bettina and her parents forget to leave a bowl of rice pudding out for their resident Nisa. Now, Anisa is a is a mythological creature in Nordic culture that is sort of like a friendly goblin or an elf that's a usually associated with winter or the winter solstice. And the tradition is that on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, you leave a little bowl of rice pudding out for them to show your appreciation. And while Nisa are traditionally helpful, they also can be mischievous, especially if humans do not hold up their end of end of the deal. And Nisa do not allow themselves to be seen by humans generally. So when Bettina's parents don't leave out the pudding, their resident Nisa gets a little upset. Now, Bettina's parents don't believe in Nisa. They're modern people, but her grandfather did. And he told Bettina uh, many stories about them. So when this traditional porridge is not left out, but there's chaos, there's some (laughs) chaos involved, okay? (laughs) And this little Nisa becomes peeved and he takes baby Pia when she's napping. That is like illegal. I mean, I know you said it chaos, but I mean, this is a felony, I think. Well, the thing <laughs> Maybe is not Nisa law. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> now the the thing is Bettina leaves her baby sister to take a nap outside in the cold, which is a thing that I had read about before. Yeah. Oh, Not they necessarily. Do that all the time yeah. yeah, I had read about it in Nordic culture, but I've heard about it in Russia. So anyway, the Nisa takes technically he's still kidnapping technically well, kind of kidnaps but he, he was gonna <laughs> give her back right but then things happen that that make this even more a problem so Bettina must find the Nisa and get her sister back before her parents return so this was a fun little story perfect for winter months it's heavily steeped in nature because Bettina must go out into the forest to try to find the Nisa and she gets help from some of the local animals. And the term winter frost, which is the title of the book, refers to when the temperature is below freezing and everything becomes covered in ice crystals. And the way that she describes it in the book is is very magical. And it's a fun way to learn about other cultures. So if you or a child in your life is a fan of children's book author Jan Brett's 
stories about little elves and winter tales. This is a great book to graduate to that has a similar feel. I enjoyed it so much that I decided to keep it for my own little children's book collection. I have one that I have set aside, you know, in case I ever have grandchildren or something that I think would be a good book to read with a child. So again, the name of that book is Winter Frost by Michelle Houts. And this author lived in Denmark for several years. So I feel like, you know, she had maybe not some firsthand knowledge of Nisa because they're imaginary, <laughs> but has some firsthand as knowledge. As far as you of, know. As far as I know, but has some firsthand knowledge. You can learn lots of cool things about, you know, Nordic culture. Very good. All right. Well, we want to thank our guest, Amy Drown from the Gibson Girl Review podcast. We're so glad that we got to chat with you and learn all about these Gilded Age and Progressive Era books. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. And we'll have to have you on the Gibson Girl Review coming up soon. We'll make you guys read one of these books and talk about it with us. Oh, cool. That sounds like fun. You can find Amy and the Gibson Girl Review at gibsongirlreview.com, as well as on Instagram at gibsongirlreview. For show notes for any episode, go to our website at perksofbeingabooklover.com. We're also on Instagram at perksofbeingabooklover.pod and on Facebook at perksofbeingabooklover. To send us a message, and you know I love messages, go to our website and click the contact button. If you enjoy listening to us each week, tell a friend or write us a review on your favorite podcast platform to help other book lovers find us. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there live or in archives at forwardradio.org. 